Hey, pull up a chair. It's Hacks on Tap with David Axelrod, Robert Gibbs, and Mike Murphy. All right, Hackaroos, welcome to Hacks on Tap. Brother Robert Gibbs, how you doing, man? Good morning. How are you? I'm okay. I'm okay. You know, today... It's a big day. In the annals... Yeah, very big day. In the annals of world history, I mean... Some of these so-called conventional historians may get all, you know, tied up with the Battle of Hastings, Magna Carta, Declaration of Independence, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. But today is a day that shines in the history books because today... ...100th episode of Hacks on Tap. Can you believe it? That's big. I mean, that is... Yeah, we made it. We made it. I mean, many attempts to uh, cancel us. You know, we won't get into all the litigation and the threats, but uh, we did it. A hundred, a big hundred of them. And, and it's I will great- say savvy listeners will recognize that music is both associated <laughs> with the hundredth episode. And of course, Mike Murphy's grand announcement of our soon to be commerce secretary, that Gina Raimondo. That we call that the Ramundo fanfare. That let's hear it one more time. We love our little fanfare music. I'm impressed that you got the uh, the trumpeters to play that uh, on cue so many times. Well, they're non-union, you know, so we can actually <laughs> afford them. But uh, we give up a little bit on pitch and tone, but it, it, the, the mix up on the dollars. Hey, now. Our our pal David Axelrod is doing important David Axelrod stuff today. I think it's cosmetic surgery, but I'm not supposed to say. But anyway, he can't be here right now. So although he couldn't be here today, Ax sends his best regards, and he may have a comment or two next week on what'll be the 101st episode. You know, one episode late, like always, but we're here from him, too. We're all so happy that you have taken time from your busy schedules to tune us in. We literally reach about 100,000 people every week, so nobody's more surprised than we are, and we thank you for that. All right, Gibbs, what is going on? I mean, we got Sarah Huckabee running for governor. We've got centrists in both parties starting to, yeah, you know— uh, look twice at $1.9 trillion in the Biden yeah. stimulus plan. We have impeachment scheduled to begin in the Senate. And, of course, we have the Senate in gridlock with only two cabinet members, though two is a good start in national security, uh, approved. So uh, a galaxy of things to talk about here. Where do you want to start? Well, I, let's talk about sort of where we are in the uh, now second week on the calendar of the Biden administration, uh, churning through the uh, the hundred days, uh, first hundred days. Uh, we've got two cabinet secretaries that have been approved. I think by the time folks listen to this, uh, there'll be a few more, including probably a secretary of treasury, which is fairly important during an economic crisis. But I think a good place to start Murphy is exactly what you said is, is how, how is the Senate in, in, in how is Congress going to deal with, uh, with COVID relief and, and, what does unity and bipartisanship and all of that stuff really mean in a world that, uh, of deeply divided politics. Yeah, boy, oh boy, that is the thing. And I saw there a couple of reports in the newspaper today about how they had convened a group of the Senate moderates from both party, which you and I as political hacks know is always good for government and always a pain in the neck for politics. Because (laughs) when you get the moderates together, moderation breaks out and nobody really is a fan of that because there's a lot of, well, I don't know, you know, can we think about it? 
And the issue is the price tag, $1.9 trillion in the Biden plan. But being a KG Paul, that's Biden's opening offer, not necessarily where he's going to land. And you had both Susan Collins and I, and I think Joe Manchin or one of the uh, more centrist Democrats both saying, gee, that's a lot of money. Maybe we can trim a couple hundred billion here, a couple hundred billion there. Collins makes the point that we just passed 900 billion. I mean, we throw these numbers around like there's fair change. It's big money. Uh, yeah. And and there's, you know, from the last plan, still a trillion unspent. So what do you think? Just opening phase of the negotiation here? I think to some degree. I mean, I, I but I also am struck by the fact that I think pretty early on in, in this race, it, to me, the, the outlines are somewhat clear here, Murphy. If if Joe Biden believes that the, the economy needs an additional one point nine trillion uh, and wants to go big, that's one path. If he wants to go bipartisan, I think that's actually a, a very different path. I, I I will say this: I don't see 1.9 billion uh, in a bipartisan way, uh, and I think that's you mentioned some of the the conjecture around the price tag, the timing. Um, look, I mean, you've got the the Senate is a, a deliberative body, as they like to remind us uh, every so often. <laughs> a lot, yeah. um, and what that means is you've got a hundred opinions and uh, sometimes a hundred different ones. And so, I, I think the Biden the Biden administration is going to have a fork in the road decision to make really quickly because to go the route of big is through some arcane Senate procedure that will take some time. In other words. It's not going to be easy to get it all done, and it's going to take a few weeks. You've got impeachment. You've got some other stuff that are that is going to occupy time on the calendar. And so I think they're going to have to make a decision pretty quickly. Which which route do they take here, um, and, uh, and, and how do they go about doing it? Yeah, it is a tough one because the Republicans are going to – it's like a bad sci-fi or maybe a good sci-fi movie where they're all in the sleeper capsules and they all wake up after four years. Hey, we're fiscal conservatives, <laughs> um, you know, which Trump had no care about. And all the Republicans as part of the Trump hypnotism uh, shamelessly went around. But let, let, let me I'm going to do my nerdy numbers thing. Now, this is where this is where David would immediately perk up and, and, and interrupt to make a point about people are hurting. This pandemic is horrible. If we don't do something, the economy is really going to get worse. All correct. But let's do the, the and this will be your favorite thing, the old Bob Dole green eye shade thing for a minute. $1.9 trillion, That's the cost of the plan. I agree with you. I don't think they're going to get one point. I think we're closer to maybe a trillion. Now, how much money is that? Well, we've already spent, or we should say we haven't really spent it all. We've appropriated $4 trillion for pandemic relief, economic assistance, hold the country together, because this pandemic is easily the biggest public health crisis we've ever had, even, I think, bigger and worse than the influenza uh, attack of 1918. How much is $4 trillion? Well, if you were to take, in 1940s money, the cost of a little thing we've all heard of called World War II, the entire cost of it and adjusted for inflation to today's money, that's about $4.1 trillion. So we basically just paid for World War II in adjusted dollars. And now we're looking at $1.9 trillion more, which will mean at the end, if, if we get that entire plan, which I think we both think we won't, not even counting future economic costs, just in, 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 in not even really costing some of the state economic costs, we're one and a half times World War II. Now, the pandemic is big. But World War II was pretty big, too. So I think the political reality 
and I'll say as a conservative, maybe even the appropriate need uh, is going to be less than 1.9. I think they're going to settle. I, I don't have a number, but I think it'll be closer to $1 trillion than $2 trillion. Let me put it that way. Uh, unless, you know, Biden wants to get his can opener out and maybe with reconciliation, uh, he, they might be able to force, as you say, the fork between doing it your way or doing it, doing it Biden's way, I should say, or doing it bipartisan. They might be able to get a million, uh, 1.9 trillion through. But yeah. I don't know. I think that'll be a pretty scorched earth deal and they might be able to, they can do a lot for a trillion one. Yeah. M- look, my, my bet here is, uh, and people know that I was, pessimistic on this getting done at the end of last year, uh, particularly I, I didn't foresee winning both Georgia Senate races. Um, but my guess is that they pick rather quickly this idea of going through reconciliation and 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 mostly because I think the Biden people are largely animated, um, I, I think, historically around the fact that with 57 or so Senate Democrats in 2009, uh, we went through in the Obama White House um, getting trying to get those three other Republicans for an economic stimulus, uh, economic stimulus bill in in pretty early in in the Obama administration. And uh, you start cutting deals to get those three extra votes. Uh, and we we lost some stimulus. Uh, we we lost the ability. And I think the Biden people, I think their view on this and I think probably correctly is. 1.9 is a lot, but the truth is overstimulating the economy uh, is better than understimulating the economy in terms of both its economic, public health, and ultimately its political effect as well. So my guess is that you're going to see that happen. You know, And look, I, I think to be clear, to, to go the bipartisan route is to try to get 10 Republicans. I don't think there are 10 Republicans that are gettable. If they are, it will be sometime around mid-June when everybody finally gets all of what they want and need out of this. And I think the Biden people also feel a sense of real urgency in making sure, having watched the Senate deliberate around this for months and months in late 2020. Yeah, I think speed kills. I'd be very tempted in Biden world to take less quickly and still have some bipartisan sheen to it. Um, but we'll see, you know, cause there, we are going to see a resurgence of the spending issue in Republican world. And I, I'm actually happy to see that come back when I'm a fiscal conservative too. I'd rather debate that than a wall and all the nativist <laughs> crap and get back. You know, I want to get back to the classic conservative liberal disagreements. And I, you know, you're, well, we, 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 we're hacks. We're not going to argue policy, though I am going to go down to Alabama and tell your friends that not only do you enjoy thespian activities, but you're now a known Keynesian. There you go. See? <laughs> yeah. yeah. The secret is out. No, I, I mean, again, I think that there's, look, I, I think in many ways, this is a deeper and different, it's obviously a different type of economic downturn than we faced in 2009. I think the job loss is greater. Uh, I, I think the the impact and look, the truth is the impact is is largely uh, the duration of the impact is largely unknown because we don't know what's going on with the vaccination distribution. And there's certainly money in there for that. Look, the allure would be and I'm sure, you know, the, the Biden people are going to have to watch out too. that the moderates that would like to do everything in a bipartisan way are going to say, 
hey, let's let's split this into three different pieces of legislation. Let's do vaccine distribution money first. We can all agree on that. Obviously, the danger in that is whatever ends up in that third tranche is highly unlikely to be part of uh, getting into law. And I think, again, that's something the Biden people are very cognizant of. And I think there's, you know, look, there's a real fear in that. I think there's there's a real danger that, again, you don't stimulate this economy enough. You don't stimulate it in the right ways, right? We all know our favorite restaurants that are going out of business. Uh, while there's a lot of people that are still doing enormously well inside of the pandemic financially. So I think there's uh, there's some real trade-offs here. And, and I think, and, and I would say this one admonition, I don't, you're going to see a lot of people, um, particularly if Biden picks reconciliation saying, well, the guy said he wanted unity, but well, we're, we're disposing with unity in the first thing. I think it's really important for listeners and for people to understand um, just because it is not part of the Republican agenda doesn't mean it isn't popular. And I think the challenge with with any party in power would be the idea of bipartisanship is there's just not a lot of overlap in these circles between what one party is for and what the other party is for. The idea that you can get bipartisanship, I think, is really hard, even as stimulating the economy is probably something that 70 or 75 percent of the American people favor. Yeah, no, look, it as old uh, hacks, we both know that the people love the global idea of bipartisanship, but the nitty gritty of issues, uh, you know, the first, well, second rule of politics is the, the old PTRF, pick the right fight. Yeah. And, you know, if the Republican, I, I agree, the smart dollar policy wise and the smart dollar politically is to get a huge chunk of money out the door for vaccine distribution right away, because that gives you the economy back and solves a lot of problems, including political popularity. So we will see. Now, part of this, and this is another topic, you know, we get mountains of mail of people asking us to go into granular detail on, which is the organizational rules of the U.S. Senate. So let's uh, next week we're going to do details of the of federal tax code to really really titillate you and go for the cheap heat. But right now let's talk about this because not everybody understands it is very different. The House has a million rules. If you're in the minority in the House, you're you're not doing a lot. Nope. But in the Senate, they make up their rules as they go along. There's a lot of precedent. But if the Senate enough of them decided that all votes had to be conducted on pogo sticks, we would have a bunch of 80-year-olds bouncing around. On, I'd actually pay to see it, actually. <laughs> we um, could sell that. I think. Yeah. No, no. I think that has possibilities. But point is, so we're in this 50-50 plus one, the VP situation. Now, back in 2001, this happened for six months, and Daschle uh, and Trent Lott cut a deal. And the right. deal was basically, we're going to 50-50 all the committees, but if the minority party uses that to block legislation, no, 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 we, can, we, we the majority party, can move anything from committee if it's deadlocked and get a floor vote. Right. Uh, the House has a whole thing called the Rules Committee, which is all about blocking everything from going to the floor that the majority doesn't want, doesn't, don't have that in the Senate. So that was the old deal. I think that's kind of what Schumer expected. And then Wiley Mitch McConnell came up and said, and I wish I could do, I can't get my voice low enough to do a proper McConnell. But he, um, he basically said, wait, wait, I'll trade you peace on that for don't undo the filibuster. So now we got another war, a procedural war. And what's your yeah. take? Well, look, I, I it, it, you know, as you mentioned, there's nobody more cagier probably in, in you, 
decide whether that's a good thing or a bad thing than Mitch McConnell. Uh, I mean, I am I am struck by a guy who uh, is happy to do away with the filibuster for appointments and then ultimately for judges uh, not wanting or wanting to preserve uh, the filibuster in the Senate. Look, I, I think in some ways this fight probably solves itself from the fact that I just don't think there are enough people in the Senate they want to get rid of the filibuster. Yeah, institutionally. That, that's kind of Schumer's trick here, probably. Yeah, I think that that probably solves this fight to some degree. Look, I, I'd be personally for getting rid of the filibuster. I think it's kind of a it's arcane. I think it's long outlived its usefulness. And and for those that wanted the cool saucer of the Senate to prevail over the hot tea of the House, I think never envisioned that every piece of legislation would essentially need 60 votes or, as you said, unanimous consent. So, look, I I think doing away with the filibuster in the long term would be a good thing. I will say this for Democrats. Don't think that you can just get rid of the filibuster for two years and then put the filibuster back in two years later. Right. Doing away with the filibuster does away with the filibuster. So, Whatever can can pass with 50 plus one, you know, whether it's d- dreams of, of different pieces of legislation, um, you know, every election, you're two years away from controlling the body. And in a 50-50 Senate, you don't have to move much to get control of it. And that filibuster could prevent also some things you don't want to happen. So it's a very tricky thing. Yeah, it is. And see, the filib- both parties grabbed the filibuster thing to go for moral outrage. The real truth of it is, it was. It became a bidding war. I, I'm a filibuster guy. I like the filibuster, though. I agree they use it too much now. The, the, that was not the intent. But way back when, frustrated that the Senate was not approving any Obama judges, uh, our friend Harry Reid from Nevada, the Democratic leader at the time, undid the filibuster for lower level stuff. And McConnell, to his credit, at the time said, "All right, you're starting a bidding war here." And sure enough. Right. McConnell made it bigger with Supreme Court justices, and now the Democrats, we'll show you they're going to take it away altogether, though, as you say, there is limited support in the Democratic caucus for that, including increasingly likely to be in many headlines, Joe Manchin, who is, is not for it. Now, there's a crafty thing floating around in the press, which is so devious that I think McConnell's even depressed he didn't think of this, <laughs> uh, which is because the Senate can kind of make its own rules, they take away the filibuster only on procedural votes, not on legislation, preserving the Mm so-called legislative filibuster. So what does that mean? That means the Democrats take away the filibuster only on the vote to organize the Senate, and then they ram that through 51 on McConnell, but they leave the legislative filibuster, which a bunch of their members want. So they kind of they, they, they get a face-saving way out of this, and they get the, the Senate operating so they can move on to cabinet people. That, that's, that's a pretty slick maneuver, and I don't see a lot stopping it right now because it, it doesn't force the nuclear war and the filibuster yet. Because, you know, you've got guys like um, Tester, Montana, Democrat, more centrist, saying, you know, I want to keep the filibuster, but if McConnell uses it every day on the cafeteria menu— and we can't ever use it, then I may become a convert. So it lets the Democrats hold the sword of filibuster cleaves uh, removal over McConnell long term. But they do a mini one on procedural only to ram through the thing, which is, you know, again, the grand rabbi of Jerusalem would take three days to figure this out. It's so intricate and tricky. But it it is an interesting move that could that could move things forward. And I, I, right now, if I had to bet money, that would be what I bet they do. And, and look, I, I think this all underscores for everyone out there listening that, you know, 
everybody in the Senate right now is essentially the Senate majority leader. With all due exactly. respect to Chuck Schumer, but like, you know, if if, if Susan Collins, if uh, if Joe Manchin, if some of these guys and, and gals get together, I mean, they essentially they can hold this thing up um, for quite some time, and and it will be interesting to watch. Look, I, I think this is where J- Joe Biden is a creature of the Senate. He loves the Senate. Um, it will be interesting to watch him navigate this 50 plus one uh it, look it is certainly better than being at 49 um but there are some real structural challenges to um to holding the majority even now again yeah you're in control everybody's of committees, a king. your control of the floor but yes everybody is and it will be um again yeah. I, I think they're going to make a determination and i think they'll need to rather quickly on sort of what's the path on this stimulus bill and what's the path on on how they move forward and and whether they 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 mess around or not. And I will say this: I mean, there's a great passage in. I, I remember it when we were in the the White House, and it's in Obama's book. You know, during healthcare, we didn't do we didn't start with reconciliation. We got there because it became clear to uh, folks in the Senate and the House that wanted to be part of writing healthcare that we weren't going to get this done any other way, even with fifty seven, fifty eight, fifty nine votes. And he's got Chuck Grassley in the couch uh, in the Oval Office, and Chuck keeps saying no to different things. And so finally Obama says, well, what do you want, Chuck? Give me three things. Or, I forget the exact right. G- give me some things you want in this bill. He lists a couple things. Obama says, Chuck, if you get those, can you support health care reform? And Grassley says, well, no, no, probably not. So th- there's a real danger to being to, – you can get this – there, there can be this like mesmerizing impact of of bipartisanship, but realizing you're negotiating with somebody that, regardless of what it is you put on their side of the ledger, they're still not going to be for it. And I think that, yeah, that well, I'm not as suggesting long as it. Go ahead, and then I'll. No, I'm not suggesting that that's necessarily the case with the people that were on with the White House on Sunday, but there are definitely some that you're going to hear chagrin you know if this goes reconciliation you'll have somebody you know lindsey graham i predicted in the great southern draw will 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 bemoan the loss of bipartisanship oh crocodile tears all the right way. even yeah. though literally uh if we gave the land of north carolina to south carolina and allowed them to call the whole thing south carolina lindsey graham still wouldn't be for whatever that bill is they'd hold out for north georgia um it's true it's the problem is bipartisanship is a great headline but the subhead is party won't get what it wants and it's hard to put those two things to do in real life and i i think this 50 50 senate you make a hugely important point the democrats have control but holding the whole caucus together because you got mansion on one side tester occasionally a few more and then on the other side, you got Bernie and a couple. They could hold their support and sink something. It's kind of like the Freedom Caucus has been doing in the House Caucus forever. A friend of mine who worked in the Senate called it 50-50 Senate is like you're on an, an international airliner and every passenger has a gun. And so anyway, we're going to Cleveland, click, and then somebody else pulls their gun. No, 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 Dallas. No, 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 Tel Aviv. No, 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 Berlin. You know. So, yeah, going to be interesting. And, and I think, I think – It'll be hard to meet the expectations people have now for now that Trump has gone everything to work perfectly, and it's just not going to be like that. But a great just to just to pin something onto that, Mike, because I, I think in the end the American people are going to judge 
Congress. They're going to judge this new president by the results that they're able to deliver, not by the process by which that legislation happens. Oh, I agree with that, happens. totally. And I think yeah. that is, again, that animates the Biden administration. This idea of, well, we could get something less in a better way, but its impact might not be. They know, they know in two years, or less than two years now, there's a midterm election. Incumbent presidents uh, don't tend to do well in those midterm elections. Uh, George W. Bush in 2002, amid a terrorist attack, being the only good recent example uh, to, to, to differ from that. So I, I think they're animated by getting something done uh, and making sure the American people feel it. Yeah, no, and I think that all resonates to COVID politics, which are not about talk, but about action. I mean, look, if this were the the People's Republic of China, every week, maybe every day, but every week, some regional COVID administrator who hadn't gotten enough shots in arms would be quietly hauled off and shot until, you know, a billion vaccines were done. And my prediction is they'd make June 1. They'd make the deadline. Right. So I'm not recommending that Biden... <laughs> <laughs> start lining anybody up but i would i would open the checkbook and i would be pretty politically brutal about unclogging this vaccination problem because if not you know one he'll catch the political covid which is deadly and second he won't get his economic comeback in time for the midterms right and he'll he'll be looking down the barrel of quite potentially a republican house and senate okay we're going to stop for a minute from this scintillating conversation because let's put it this way we got to earn as they say on the docks of detroit and we're going to go to one of our sponsors You know, Gibbs, every once in a while uh, on Twitter, people will write in and say, Axe, you make me nauseous. But nausea is nothing to joke about. It's like getting stuck in the back of a car and you're kind of a little bit hemmed in and you just you get that feeling and it starts in your stomach. It's not. Yeah. A and, and, and like you're on your way to something good, a, a celebration or party or something. And now you're nauseous and you can't get rid of it, except there is an answer now. And it's called Relief Band. Tell us about Relief Band. Relief Band is the number one FDA-cleared anti-nausea wristband that has been clinically proven to quickly relieve and effectively prevent nausea and vomiting associated with motion sickness, anxiety, migraines, hangovers, morning sickness, chemotherapy, and so much more. The product is 100% drug-free, non-drowsy, and provides all-natural relief with zero side effects. Zero for as long as needed. The technology was originally developed over 20 years ago in hospitals to relieve nausea from patients, but now through Relief Band, it's available to all of us. Here's how it works with Relief Band. It stimulates a nerve in the wrist that travels to the part of the brain that controls nausea. Then it blocks the signal your brain is sending to your stomach telling you that you're sick. Relief Band is the only over-the-counter wearable device that has been used in hospitals and oncology clinics to treat nausea and vomiting. If you know somebody who deals with nausea, Relief Band makes a great gift. I'm telling you, Relief Band works. We know from our own experience, we sent one to our engineer who often gets nauseous during our shows, and he reports 100% cure. Don't fall for those cheap bands you see in drugstores or on your Instagram feed. All right. Right now, Relief Band has an exclusive offer just for our Hacks listeners. If you go to reliefband.com and use promo code HACKS, you'll receive 20% off plus free shipping and a no questions asked 30-day money-back guarantee. So head to Relief Band, R-E-L-I-E-F-B-A-N-D. 
HackerOnline.com and use our promo code HACKS for 20% off plus free shipping. Now, back to former presidents. We, we have one licking his many wounds down in Mar-a-Lago, and he's going to have to clear his uh, calendar, it appears, uh, for mid-February because a Senate deal has been done for the impeachment trial, and he's going to have to mount a defense. Now, I, don't, I guess he's hired a local 1-800, if you've got a phone, you've got a lawyer, uh, counsel down there in Palm Beach. But let's talk impeachment for a minute. Uh, what do you think about the deal to delay? Do you think there are big politics there, or it's just they want to move some Biden appointees first? And I'll tell you my theory about why Mitch delaying it has a, has a purpose beyond Senate internal stuff. Well, I think every day we get farther away from what happened at the Capitol on January the 6th, the less likely we are to see Trump impeached for what happened there. Um, my guess is that this is a little bit like if you'd voted on, um, some sensible gun control the afternoon after Newtown, uh, when all those kids were killed inside that school, you'd have gotten something passed. Um, but waiting, uh, essentially waters it down and ultimately kills it. And so I'm, I'm pessimistic that once this, um, convenes and I don't think the trial will take long. There's some recesses that come up not long after they go into this trial. And I don't, Lord knows if they go, if the trial extends into a recess and has to come back out after a Senate recess, I think the likelihood of this is almost none. I also think too, look, I think that, that McConnell and others are, are, are probably deeply, you know, deeply dismayed by what happened on January the 6th. I also think, though, what animates Mitch McConnell is Senate primaries. And if you get 17 Republicans to vote for impeachment, you're going to have you're not going to have the civil war that we've been thinking about between sort of former Republicans and current Republicans. You're going to have a civil war between um, the, ex- the the right and the, or the the extreme right and the really, really, really extreme right. And I don't think Mitch McConnell wants anything to do with that. Yeah, I think McConnell's high priority is Senate primaries, but I think he's got an even higher priority, which is Senate general elections. And I think, I agree with you, I think it's less than 50-50. And I think as we get away from that horrible insurrection day, the public outrage is dimming a little, like everything in American politics. But there's something in many ways more important because, you know, in the kind of echo chamber of Washington and everything, a lot of us say, oh, a new Axios poll, you know, says that 82 percent of Republicans don't want there. You don't look at politics through the rearview mirror in polling. You look forward and behind the polling and behind the feeling of the moment and the D.C. cocktail party, you know, CW circuit that's still waiting for President John Glenn. There is a reality that inside the Republican world, a message has been sent and is being sent that is powerfully clear. And frankly, I don't think it's ever been sent before, which is we're not going to be there for you with the money. Now, there are MAGA guys who own plastic coat hanger factories that you can get the odd hundred grand from, maybe the odd couple million. You know, Sheldon Adelson has passed away. We don't know if Miriam will be in the same business as before. The Koch brothers are quietly very anti-Trump. And they uh, that spigot's been pretty much cut off for direct politics. They're much more involved in cultural stuff now. So 
do these senators want to get outspent three to one on TV and digital in their reelect? Because uh, they're just not going to be able to raise it. That is about the most sobering thought. That and the free haircuts are often the two things that Senate minds orbit around. So I, I think McConnell is hoping that that pressure will build and build and build because the you're going to get a primary from a guy in an Uncle Sam suit pressure has always been there. And it's pretty scary to a bunch of them. You know, we saw Rod Portman today announce that, you know, he for a guy who eats with a knife and fork and likes to get stuff done, he's had enough. He's retiring. People expected him to run for re-election in Ohio, and that's a tilt our state, but I think he just got fed up with it. You know, Pat Toomey, another great senator, is leaving in Pennsylvania. That's going to be a very hard seat to win. The primary is one problem, but that's about the general there. So I, um, I take your point, but I still think McConnell and the other shrewdest Senate Republicans would like to bury Trump. They would like to get the shield of the impeachment vote. And they would like to ban him from ever running again and protect the national security side, where all the professionals of both parties are terrified at the idea of Trump having presidential briefings going forward. They, they're still having nightmares about the ones that he's had because right. Trump likes to, you know, go show up with his sleazy new Russian banker, for instance, say, hey, you know, we got this secret laser that can blow up. Oh, whoops. <laughs> you know, um, so for all those reasons, I think it's less than 50-50. But again, Wiley Mitch, we're gonna, that financial pressure is going to build. And uh, guys in competitive races need money. And without business money, there's only crank money, and there's not enough crank money. So we will see. And I think you're right. I mean, look, McConnell is the tell here. And if McConnell is, uh, is, is, is in for impeachment, then I think a lot will follow. I think it'll be very different than the House, where I think the House animation on this is um, – you know, even, you know, you, you had a few Republicans go, I think 10 total who voted for impeachment. And there were, you know, some people thinking when a couple of them went, including Liz Cheney, who's in the leadership, what they were thinking, oh, maybe you'll see more. And and I think smart observers said, yeah, we'll put the over under it like a dozen. And, you know, there just wasn't a stampede. I think if Mitch lays his money on impeachment, um, there'll be a lot, lot more that will follow and, and enough to get him out. So, uh, or, as you said, prevent him from running again. So uh, I had a uh, House member tell me that we would have gotten high 30s to 40 if the House voted really counted and they thought it was sure the Senate would do them in. You know, it was kind of easy to be a House member because you knew it was going to pass. So if you were for it, you didn't have to vote for it right. and, you know, take the wrath of Freedom Caucus. I think another tell, and we talked about this uh, the last episode, is will Mary Cheney survive? She's number three in the House leadership. Liz. And I think the right after the vote, everybody thought, oh, she's dead. But I've talked to a couple ex-members who are kind of in with it, friends of hers, some other members. And I, uh, I think it's becoming a referendum on the kind of bully boy Freedom Caucus. And that's not good for them. It's good right. for Cheney surviving. Now, the swing vote, I'm told, are a lot of the freshmen who haven't experienced the hell of trying to do anything with the Freedom Caucus holding back and a block vote and may not have that same anger, but I don't know. I, uh, I, I think the over under now is that, that Mary will survive. I'm sorry. Mary, I keep saying Mary Cheney because Mary <laughs> Cheney is a friend of mine and we used to work together. I mean, Liz Cheney, uh, her sister who serves in the Congress and voted so courageously. So my point is I think Liz Cheney will survive and that'll be a sign of strength that may affect the, uh, the Senate vote. But again, this is all shifting sands and, uh, um, you know, hard to calculate now. I think more time will lower the public anger, as you said, but the behind the scenes pressure 
on the finance side uh, is building a bit. And if it continues yeah. to, uh, it could be telling. So we'll wait and see there. It'll be it'll be interesting. Now, what do you think the Trump defense will be? You know, I'm, I'm, I wonder, will he try to say, will he want the spotlight and do a crazy rambling speech? They'll probably hurt his cause. God, I, I think be, it'll be uh, hard for him to stay silent in February. Well, right. I mean, you know, I mean, my, he uh, apparently is trying to get back on Facebook uh, and and have the ability to communicate. So it'll be interesting to sort of watch that. I, I you know, my, my guess is that he's going to say he had, you know, he, he, at least will he will argue that what he said did not incite the riot, uh, that that he can't be held responsible for. Um, the actions of, of, of others based on on what he said. Uh, I think it'll just be, you know, look, it, is a little, it will always be a little bit like art. It'll all be in the eye of the beholder. And I think, I think if they did a, um, if they did a secret ballot, I don't think this would be close. Uh, I think because you have to stand up there in front of your colleagues in the world and say where you are, I think the animation is going to be difficult. But, um, I, you know, look, I, I will say this. I am... Uh, I'm really enjoying the withdrawal of literally and figuratively of Donald Trump from our politics, or at least from our daily news consumption. Yeah. I, hallelujah. I, I might pay to see one last speech in the well of the Senate defending himself <laughs> uh, on insurrection. That might be a, uh, and you know, at one point there was this idea of maybe like Giuliani would defend him and call Trump as a witness. And that would be like may, maybe the only thing that could put this in a better bow. Um, Maybe we can move this to Four Seasons Total Landscaping and have the trial there in the parking lot. Uh, but no, my my guess is that um, th- you know that Trump will have to you know somebody will have to babysit him because you know the one thing is he doesn't have an apparatus around him that counts votes. He doesn't have an apparatus around him. He's he's, he's talking to Graham Lindsey Graham about this. I think you saw over the weekend in the paper he's sort of. He he floated this idea of threatening starting a party, uh-huh, uh, a party. mega party, sort of as a, a a hedge to these Republicans, saying, "If you vote for impeachment and you vote to convict me, I, I'm starting this party and I'll run all these people that will pull votes away from you." He seems to have backed off that a little bit, um, but uh, m- my hunch is that he you know he finds some way to communicate, but is uh, the less he says is the the better. I mean that's true for almost anything that involves Trump. Yeah, I hope he does start a third party simply so, you know, a MAGA party of his hardcore kooks so we can we can have Republicans, Democrats and maggots. I think <laughs> I think it'll be all cosmically aligned that way. Now, a little sidebar in the Senate thing. There's been an interesting new, you know, if if you're the editor of Sophism magazine, you've got to follow some of these 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 kind of weaselly Republicans, my people, uh, sadly enough, carefully. Because there's a new argument popping up, and and Senator Tom Cotton, who's another ambitious guy out of Arkansas, he's interesting because he's kind of half Josh Hawley and half Marco Rubio. You know, he kind of wants to do the Trump crazy thing, but he's very cautious, finger in the wind like Rubio. And so Cotton is talking about, well, you know, there's serious things here, absolutely, but you cannot impeach an ex-president. That's kind of becoming one of the new, you know, uh, dodges here. What's your take on it? Will that give anybody political cover? Because most constitutional experts say, well, they've done it with congressmen. 
you can do it with a president. So I think it's it, it's intellectually a bit dishonest, but that's a whole caucus now in the Republican Senate. Uh, not that it hasn't been in the Democratic one in the past either. What's your take on this new defense that, oh, shucks, we just missed a deadline or we could have done something? Yeah, I mean, look, I don't I, I don't think there's 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 certainly some precedent in law that allows you to do these impeachments afterwards. I think there's this idea. Look, do I think it gives people an out to not having to come down on. Uh, the substance of of insurrection or sedition or or whatever you want to call it. I mean, I also think too. It's interesting. I was reading today. There still is, regardless of um, whether the impeachment goes off and and how it goes off. There still could be. There, there's legal scholars have argued that there's a provision in the Constitution in the Fourteenth Amendment that disallows anybody involved in insurrection from running for federal office, and it, it's of course an old Civil War thing. Uh, barring confederates and so it, it may be that that there's a way to your earlier point of getting rid of trump as part of the the political conversation in the party without going through to impeachment so i think there's a lot of different avenues here i, I just you know it'll, it's going to be fascinating to watch again i think the biggest thing is as the clock ticks farther and farther away from the sixth the harder it is to see uh anything really happening yeah, I think a few Confederates have snuck in. We gotta, we gotta look into that. Just a yeah. handful of them. Murphy, I always love saying this. Now, a word from our sponsor. So, is Sarah Huckabee? We now see. This is a little corner of Hacks on Tap for oddball candidacies we're going to establish. I'm going to call it the Smiling Panda Corner because whenever a knucklehead is elected to high office, I think it's good news for our geopolitical rivals over there and the PRC. So the panda is smiling today, I think, because the next governor of Arkansas, do you think it'll be Sarah the Fabricator Huckabee? I think by all accounts, she's, uh, she's, she's running because she's got polls that show she's going to win. Uh, and, and or at I least think, has a shot if she can get through the primary. Et exactly. I think it will be interesting, you know. And, and I'm I'm not as well versed in in Arkansas as I might be in some other more southern states. But you know, what will be interesting is you know she's got a primary. She's running against the standing lieutenant governor Tim Griffin, who was a staffer in the Bush administration, ran for Congress, served in Congress before becoming lieutenant governor. Uh, so I think there's uh, it. It might be an interesting kind of. Um, and maybe this is a little bit Liz Cheney as well, which is sort of, you know, the Bush Republican Party versus the Trump Republican Party. But look, I, I think, you know, she is obviously has some big standing in the Republican Party. Sarah Huckabee Sanders does a lot of TV time as the former press secretary, Fox News contributor until the video went out this morning. And I think probably something that gets dis- not discounted, but doesn't get talked about as much as being press secretary is her middle name is still Huckabee, and her yeah. dad was once uh, a, 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 a probably a pretty popular governor, you know, who was going to run for the Senate, and then uh, and then ended up in uh, in the governor's mansion for two terms, two plus terms, I think. So it's going to be interesting to see. This is going to be we're going to judge whether what are the limits of Trumpism, and 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 what are the characters that can animate it in a post-Trump world. It's an interesting thing to watch, uh, Murphy. Uh, you know, I, I spent two years as the press secretary and um it, it, it's hard to watch what happened over the four years in trump world to that briefing room and to yeah. the idea that 
as I've said, you know, I would have been mortified to have gone in there and either said something that was untrue or even passed information along that ended up being untrue. And, um, you know, I, I think it was done with such um, reckless abandon in the Trump administration that it's caused a real it's been part of the cause of this sort of disinformation ecosystem that we're all now having to, to kind of feel our way and, and navigate our way through. And I think it's really, um, uh, it's, it's terrible what happened. I'm glad it's being rectified and, uh, you know, uh, and Sarah Sanders played a role in that. And even so much as in a deposition admitting that she was passing along information that wasn't true. Oh, yeah. No, she was part of the destruction of an important institution. I think she is absolutely complicit and culpable. It will be interesting. Griffin's a good guy. Um, there will be a primary. I think yep. this is not the best terrain to fight out the Trump versus non-Trump question in the Republican Party. But there is the potential of a decent primary there. I think she will get looked at with an electron microscope now quite gleefully by the media. Now, how that's presented can cut both ways. Uh, in an Arkansas primary. Arkansas politics are tough. She is a veteran of it. It was the family business for a while. There's a certain stench orbiting the Huckabees down there, though, in, in a lot of places. So I, I, I don't think it's been cooked enough to really know. Exactly. Uh, I would give her an early edge on the generics, Trump state, Trump connection, but we might be in the new Trump era, too. And I wouldn't totally count out, you know, Tim Griffin's been out there slugging away for a long time, building up strength. He's a political animal. So uh, this will be interesting, and I, I predict in, after the announcement bump cools off, there'll be a lot of polling and some calculation made, uh, and if, if Griffin's in the hunt, he'll get help, uh, and, and we're safe. This is a good thing for our listeners to understand. I mean, a lot of these polls, particularly at this point, I mean, my, my guess is there's not a lot of people that know, uh, a lot of people that are going to ultimately participate in a Republican primary that can, that can name their state's lieutenant governor. Uh, and that's not a slight on on the lieutenant governor. Polls at this point are going to measure name ID and almost right. exclusively name ID. And it would it's not surprising that that Sarah Huckabee Sanders is where she is, given what that relative name ID would be in re the Republican Party. And you see this a little bit in we have this in the mayor's race in New York. Right. Andrew Yang is ahead in a lot of polls. Not because I'm necessarily convinced he's going to end up there, but because his name ID outstrips, say, the city comptroller or something like that. Right. So right. the early polls are a noise meter, and the announcement is noisy, and being on Fox is noisy. But you got to grind out over time. So that's true. I mean, Griffin's a typical early candidate. He's probably been working on the eight to ten percent or the backbone activist of the state yep. party, and. Until he's on television, there won't be a lot of, of, of easy name ID for him, and that'll affect the early ballot on the polling. Murphy, one last thing before we get to the mailbag. I want to just touch on something you mentioned quickly earlier, and that is Rob Portman, Ohio senator, deciding not to seek reelection uh, in, in 2022. And uh, let me read a little bit of what he said. We live in, a, in an increasingly polarized country where members of both parties are being pushed further to the right. And further to the left, and that means too few people who are actively looking to find common ground. Now, here's the part that I, I, I thought was really interesting and not surprising. Quote, this is a tough time to be in public service. What do you make of all that? I think it's absolutely true. And I think it is a problem because we have a superpower to run here and we need the best people in public service. But right now, we, we trap them between uncompromising primary voters and 
you know, insult comics on primetime cable news. So, you know, the tribes are getting whipped up and the people who would like to do things from the right or the left are in a vice. All right, we're going to take a minute to pay the bills and we'll be right back. All right, we have some good questions, but don't forget to send us your questions for the Sainted Mailbag here on our 100th episode. We're looking to uh, answer your questions going forward. You can send them to us at hacksontap at gmail.com, hacksontap at gmail.com, and yes, we do read them. Also, please, if you like the show, rate us on your podcast platform, Spotify, Apple Podcast, anywhere, anywhere you listen. Give us a rating or even use that little share thing down in the right corner to send an episode to a friend. The more ratings we get, the more listeners we get and the more power mad we get just to be clear murphy let's be party bosses here we want ratings we want good ratings. that's right that's right so in the words of the great party boss on election day poll lever 2a for your fine slate of endorsed party candidates (laughs) no need to read the names just by the little donkey or the republican pull the lever all right murphy i've got a question for you from nicole and she writes in mike mentioned something striking couple of weeks ago that my husband and I think merits some more detail for listeners, which is that the revenue model for Fox is driven more by cable subscriptions than advertising. It'd be great to hear more from you about this and any other ways we can use our dollars and voices to take action. Okay. Well, yeah, this is a pet peeve of mine. I've been thinking about writing a little thing for the bulwark on it. I've just been up to my neck in other work. So here's the deal. We all are used to the old model, particularly us uh, older hacks, that stations, you know, television makes money from advertising. Well, for the cable news networks, that's not really true. They do make money from advertising. But the real money is when you pay your cable or DirecTV or whatever bill, they get part of it per channel. And they negotiate this. That's why once in a while you see a channel will drop off your local cable coverage and there'll be a little mini campaign. That's because the cable channel wants, say, $2 for every subscriber. And the cable station that's collecting your bill, the cable network, the distributor, wants to only pay $1. So they fight. So the main revenue source for Fox News is getting a dollar or two or three. I think it, it's all very secret, but most experts think it's around two fifty to even three dollars per month per subscriber. So when you pay your cable bill, even if you never see Fox, you're giving them two or three bucks every month. That's where the big money is for Fox or CNN or you know TNT or any of your basic cable stations. Then the real premium stuff like HBO, et cetera, you pay even more from. Now, there was a big fight, and we won't go into this because you're all fall asleep, but there's a thing called bundling, which is why do they get to bill me for all those channels in a package? Why can't I pick just the one I want? Well, basically, the fight to do that lost. Though I've always thought if a bunch of smart Fox people who were offended by their primetime stuff. I think some of their news is just fine, but the primetime opinion, which they say now they're doubling down on as they shake up their programming because they're very worried about, more jargon, OTT, over-the-top competition uh, from people like OAN. By the way, if you're bored one day, take a load of that routine. They're they're selling. Uh, It's unbelievable. But Fox has actually some trouble on the right on these new platforms, so they're going to double down on opinion. Well, I thought it would be interesting if a couple million people said, we're not going to pay our cable bill anymore unless you give us the option to not get Fox and chip the 250 off our bill every month. Now, if 
10,000 people do it, I predict 10,000 people will get their cable turned off. But if 10 million people do it, then the cable distributors, they've got no choice but to go to Fox and say, either take this heat away or we're going to have to start doing a defund option. Because the little secret of the cable business is one of the most expensive things for them to do is turn off your service and then turn it back on again. It's more than $2 a month to do that, so they'd rather avoid the headache. So anyway, if you want to hit Fox economically, I'm not for banning. I'm a First Amendment guy. But this forced carriage thing where in most cable bills you are required the pay a fee to Fox every month, whether you like the programming or not. Uh, I think organized economic power, collective bargaining, as Comrade Gibbs will smile at, could be a powerful weapon to maybe curb their excesses. Sorry for the long answer, but that's the story on that. Murphy, I don't think people realize that if you listen to the entire episode today, Murphy goes through the arcane nature of both organizing the Senate and cable carriage fees. I mean, people are going to be, I mean, this hundredth episode, the richness with which you are dispensing <laughs> uh, knowledge and intelligence today, people might actually get a, a master's degree in, in broadcast news at the end. I am a sock puppet, but I have a team of writers that put big <laughs> words in front of me and might make head work to read words for people listening on Radio Pod. <laughs> Today's pod brought to you by carriage fees. All right. <laughs> now you got me going. Carriage fees isn't even technically the right thing. That is what the networks get paid by locals. Anyway, big and complicated, but basically Fox makes money from your cable bill if you don't like it, organize and protest. Now, Robert, a political question after that, if anybody's still listening, <laughs> from Sean, number six on our mailbag. We had 12 questions. We apologize we can't get to them all. If you had a question in the past, but we never got to, send it back to us and maybe we'll read it sober and and it'll make it the next time. Sean wants to know, Robert, do you think Biden should hold rallies throughout his presidency? Is there something to be said about holding them to energize folks and get the president's message out? What do you think? Rallies? Well, look, I don't think rallies in the traditional sense that we've become accustomed to watching the vanity project that is a Trump rally. Joe Biden is is more disciplined by far than Donald Trump. Uh, he's not going to go give a 75-minute Castro-type speech in, 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 a, in an auditorium. But he could. Of adoring, <laughs> he and a, could do two hours. Of adoring. Uh, yeah, I've sat through some Senate hearings that are, uh, that are <laughs> challenging. But I think the thematic that you touch on is how do you keep how are you going to keep the base energized? I think it's going to be tremendously important. Obviously, this is in a post-COVID world. I think one of the big challenges for the administration is how do they continue to update the American people on the progress that they're making? I mean, I think there's there's got to be, I mean, I'm thinking in my head, there's got to be something that is akin to the digital version these days of fireside chats. I don't think they have to be 20,000 screaming fans. I don't think they have to be in big auditoriums. But I think the, the Biden folks from a communications perspective really have to figure out how to reach out and, again, provide people with an update on the things that drove him to run for office and the progress he's making in and keeping those promises. And I think that will be really, really important towards building some energy and excitement as we head to 2022. And I think uh, uh, it'll be a challenge because we live in a very diffuse uh, information ecosystem. Uh, it's not as easy as walking out and getting on one or two newscasts that are seen by tens of millions of people. It takes a lot of work. But I think keeping the base energized and keeping the American people up to date are really, really big to-dos for the Biden administration. 
Yeah, if I were Biden, and I pitched this before, I'd get a Joe Garagiola type. That is a reference, kids, to the 70s when Jerry Ford did this well during his campaign with a popular uh, former Major League Baseball star turned uh, TV pitchman. But anyway, do an over-the-top digital streaming weekly or twice a month fireside chat. Biden, the dog, and somebody to interrupt him and keep the topic moving. Kind of an intimate format. It's old, but it could be modernized. I think Biden would be great at it. But I'm totally with you, Robert. you got to keep the connection. And the problem with just doing the old sound bites, well, it works. In the modern news, it's going to be wrapped around cable coverage. And and, uh, it's just not as clean as it used to be to punch through and penetrate. Okay. Well, I think we've come to the end of our our historic 100th, my, my jaw hurts to even think about, we've done 100 of these things. Um, but we've enjoyed it, and we've sure enjoyed your comments, feedback, and and appreciate your time, busy people, for listening. So with that, we'll have Brother Axelrod back next week. And uh, Robert, it's been a pleasure. Here's to 100 more, Murphy. Oh, absolutely. If they'll keep us, 